I'm Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. What's the role that emotions play in politics and civic life? Do feelings like rage, happiness, or tension get in the way of political progress? Or are they tools in the fight for social justice? With me on the show today is Mina Krishnamurthy, a philosopher whose work explores the value of political emotions. Emotions are really central to our own lived experiences. I think all of us are sort of emotional creatures. And so understanding the emotions gives me understanding about myself and other people. But also as somebody who's a democratic theorist, who's long thought about the value of democracy, the next question for me is like, how do we really realize a true and genuine form of democracy that's robust and long lasting? And from people like King, Gandhi, all of these people who are involved in organizing, you see a really strong emphasis on moral emotions as being part of the path to progress. So if you care about sort of moving past the problems that we see, then we have to start really thinking about the role of the emotions play and how to cultivate the right sorts of emotions in our fellow citizens so that we can keep making progress in the right direction. Stay tuned for my interview with Mina Krishnamurthy on today's episode of Examining Ethics. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to... Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail is one of the most powerful and effectual pieces of writing to come from the civil rights movement. It's King's passionate defense of direct action in the face of injustice. He wrote the letter in response to criticism he had recently received about his way of protesting segregation policies in Birmingham, Alabama. He organized sit-ins, demonstrations, and boycotts. But a group of white religious leaders thought that a better way to fight segregation would be through electoral politics. They argued that King's methods were too confrontational, too upsetting. The letter, of course, is directed at all white moderates, not just this one particular group of clergymen. King criticizes moderates and centrists for their avoidance of confrontation, of tension, of emotion. Here's an excerpt from the letter, read aloud by King himself, about these centrist political figures. First, I must must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. 
lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. It's this letter to and about the lukewarm, the shallow, the tension-avoiding white moderates that our guest, Mina Krishnamurthy, discusses with me. Much of her scholarship explores political emotions, and she helps me understand the emotions that run through and inform much of King's work. She's an assistant professor of philosophy at Queen's University. We spoke in February of 2021. We are going to talk about political emotions. For those of us who might not be familiar with that term, what what is a political emotion? So I think sometimes uh, the phrase is used as civic passions. So they're usually the kinds of emotions that we think that um, are worth fostering in citizens. And so they're like appropriate emotions that we think are an important part of being a good citizen in a democratic society, for example. And just like kind of almost like to back step one is to think a little bit about what is an emotion. And there's a lot of debate about what exactly an emotion is. So some people think that emotions are affective attitudes. So they might just be like a feeling about a particular object. And that could be something physiological, like you're angry, that something. Your heart rate might increase. You might have an adrenaline response. So that might be what some people think is an emotion. But for others, uh, people believe that emotions are not just the affective attitude where there's all this feelingsy stuff happening, but a cognitive attitude, like a belief that something. So if you think that you're angry, um, you know, at uh, injustice, there's a belief that something is unjust, for example, that's sort of a component part of the emotion. And then civic emotions or political emotions are the kinds of emotions that we think are worth encouraging because we think they have an important role to play in fostering good citizenship. Your your argument is that political emotions are, are part of what helps us be better citizens. Right. Right. And they can go awry. Like, I think the thing that's tricky about emotions, and I'm sure we'll get to this more as we keep talking, but they can go awry and lead us in the wrong direction. So kind of like thinking a bit about Aristotle or the idea of habituation, the thought is you want to habituate good and appropriate emotional responses in, the, in your citizens so that they go in the right direction. We all have feelings, of course, but we want them to push in the right direction towards equality, democracy, and justice rather than something else. In a lot of your work, Martin Luther King Jr. serves as a as an exemplar, would that be fair to say for you, mm-hmm. in terms of political emotions and fostering political emotions. And you've written a lot about King's letter from a Birmingham jail, um, which he wrote in April of 1963 while he was in jail because he was participating, well, because he led uh, a nonviolent demonstration down in Birmingham, Alabama. Before we get too deep into the, the political emotions in the letter, what's the kind of political context for this moment? So it's always important to kind of remember that the letter was written in response to a statement that was made by eight clergymen um, who were sort of counseling King and his supporters to wait patiently for racial justice, asking them to kind of stop all of their demonstrations and wait for the courts to do what they were supposed to do. And King in the letter is, you know, forcefully responding, saying, no, we can't keep waiting anymore. And in fact, you know, the letter later becomes part of this book called Why We Can't Wait. And the whole book is kind of a treatise on why we can't just keep waiting um, patiently. And in fact, that he believes that the courts have to be forced by these demonstrations and through political pressure to actually do what they ought to do. So that's kind of the p- perspective that King is writing from. There are a lot of emotions running through this letter, right? When I read the letter again, thinking about your work, I started to notice all these emotions almost in every paragraph. And one of the emotions that he talks about that I just had never thought about before was tension. Is that an emotion? Am I okay in saying that tension is an emotion? Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think that itself is a really interesting philosophical question, but let's just start with that assumption that it is an emotion. Yeah. 
And so I'm going to read a line and maybe you can help us understand this line through the lens of your work. So he writes, nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. I think what King is trying to do is to force a kind of psychic tension. Um, and a lot of the work that I've been talking, like writing about regarding King is that he believes that the white moderates are suffering from a kind of affected ignorance. So on the one hand, they believe that racial inequality, racial segregation is morally wrong and unjust. But the other hand, they don't believe that immediate action to alleviate that injustice is necessary. And, you know, they give lots of spurious justifications for, for why they should keep being passive, right? And that's kind of what comes out of the letter from the eight clergymen. And so in a way, there should be attention because on one hand, you have these commitments that you're professing, but then you're not acting on them. So you should feel attention because you're not doing what you think you should. But the moderates are giving all of these reasons to kind of alleviate the tension and the, the kind of contradiction between these two things. King sometimes talks about this as a moral schizophrenia, that there are these two components that are intention, psychic tension for the white moderates. And in a way, he's trying to sort of force the white moderates to confront the tension between their professed values and then their political inaction and to see that these things are actually in juxtaposition or tension with each other. And for King, the emotions are really pivotal and highlighting this kind of contradiction or tension. And then the hope is through going through that process of tension, seeing it, confronting it, engaging it, there'll be almost a kind of, there is a kind of pressure to finally act on the values that they say that they have, which is that they believe in racial equality and racial justice. And I find that interesting that he and his movement want to foster tension. And I, later, I believe he even says he wants to create it. He wants to create a feeling of attention. And I feel like for some folks in the audience, that might seem at odds with his professed value of, of nonviolence. So I wonder, does that seem like hypocritical to you at all? Or can we make sense of that? Well, I think his thought is that he's going to create this constructive tension through nonviolence by putting nonviolent pressure on people. So for him, you know, he can still maintain a deep commitment to nonviolence. Um, but nonviolence doesn't mean there won't be any pressure or force on people. And that is actually something that he gets directly from Gandhi, who talks about the kind of force that's involved in nonviolence is what he calls soul force. Or I think a better description is actually the Sanskrit word, which is satyagraha, which is like you're standing firm with the truth like at your back or behind you and then you're trying to bring truth to light but of course you're putting pressure on other people so they will see this truth because it is a truth that they've long denied but that doesn't mean that there's any kind of violence inherent in fact non-violence is key to this this process of enlightening people another sort of emotion or something that's in the world of emotions that he also is discussing is what he calls the lukewarm acceptance of white moderates mm -hmm. um What's wrong with being ambivalent or being not quite so emotional? So in some ways, when you look at the, the kind of the dialogue between the clergyman and King, what you kind of get is the clergyman saying, we need to be calm, we need to be patient, and King very much denying that. That actually, again, the thought is there's a grave, grave injustice at stake. And actually the belief that there's a grave injustice at stake is in tension with the thought that we should be calm. Why would we want to be calm? about a deep injustice, if there's racial segregation or kids being locked up in cages, why would the right response be being calm? In fact, that feels like the exact wrong response. So King is really thinking, it's really easy to, to sort of in words to say, I believe something. I believe that in, you know racial equality is a good thing. I believe racial segregation is an injustice, but that is almost too weak for him to just say it. You need to live it through action and carry out, you know, act on your, your commitments in a way that will actually foster change and progress. So just believing it sort of passively is, you know, not good enough for King. It's never going to solve the problems that we face. 
I feel so drawn to that idea because of what's happening now, right? And I just, I just feel like the same arguments are playing out, right? I mean, it, it seems like the lukewarm acceptance, the white moderates, they're the ones that are talking to Black Lives Matter protesters and saying like, let's tone it down, you know, take it, take it down a notch. Um, mm -hmm. Is that part of what inspired your work on this or did it kind of start before that? Question, because I was working on King even before I was back in the US. So I, I think I was more like looking at the letter with fresh eyes. And I suddenly thought like, you know, King is not as fuzzy and optimistic um, and utopian as everybody seems to think. Like when you really look at the letter with fresh eyes, it's been a long time since I reread it when I first started this project. I thought this is reading very differently to me. There is a kind of um, not a pessimism, but a deep sense of realism. I think that's present in King's work that I think is so often ignored. It isn't just utopian and, and about the dream. Um, he was looking at problems and looking at the barriers to solving those problems and saw this kind of lukewarm acceptance and this idea that I was saying before about this kind of, we wouldn't love, we wouldn't want to use the term schizophrenia now, but I think the thought of having a divided mind is the way that King sometimes talks about it. And he sees this, you know, this divided mind where you're saying one thing, but doing another is maybe one of the biggest barriers to injustice. And he has a very complex story about what gives rise to this divided mind. And it's not a pretty picture that King gives of the white moderates. He thinks that their identity and their, their um, desire to maintain a kind of social status as white people with, you know, skin being the right color, um, in his words, you know, is something that they want to secure. And also the economic and political benefits that come from that status. And that is actually what's driving this divided mind. So one of the things I've tried to point out in my own work is that in many ways, King sees a lot of overlap between the white moderates and the segregationists meaning that their own self-interest is really wrapped up in maintaining white supremacy in different ways. The main difference is you've got the white moderates professing these commitments and the segregationists are not even professing them because they really don't believe them. And so I think we get a, a much darker picture of white moral psychology from King than most people really recognize. So yeah, what's the role of, of shame in this letter? And again, I don't know if that's necessarily an emotion, but shaming certainly brings up emotions in people, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think shame is a moral emotion. And um, the way that people typically talk about shame is it's a sense that there is a bad self who's failing to live up to one's own commitments. And these are typically commitments we share with other people we see as being in a moral community with us. So on one hand, it's a recognition of these shared commitments we have with other people, but we feel that there's something wrong with ourselves. And then that's when the emotion of shame is sort of elicited. And so King is definitely trying to shame the white moderates. Like you keep saying you share in these commitments with me and yet you fail to live up to them again and again and again and again and there are a lot of broken promises um so you should feel badly about the fact that you're failing up to live to these commitments that you say that you have and that you potentially share with me and the rest of my my fellow black americans so he is really trying to kind of call it the hypocrisy of the white moderates for professing one thing and then doing another and he is hoping at least i argue in my own work to shame them but in that there is a kind of hopefulness that King has, and we, we can talk about whether this hopefulness is still warranted today, but I think he believed that shame was a moral emotion because once we recognize that the self is bad and that we're failing to live up to our commitments, the hope is that under the right conditions anyways, um, we're gonna try to change the bad self so that we can do better and actually live up to those commitments we say we have and that we share with other moral individuals. And so King's hope in sort of calling out the hypocrisy of the white moderates is them to inspire them to be better and to do better and to actually act on their principles, not just keep stating them. So there's a lot of hope, I think, in King's appeal to shame. Do you get a sense that it that it worked? I think there's a big debate to be had about whether it did work. I think here's what I think about King. I think King thinks that different things work for different people. And I think that he thinks shame definitely worked 
on at least a, a, a group of people. I think there were lots of other things motivating you know, people at the time. Some of it was economic pressure through economic boycotts. That also just worked. Um, but some of it was this kind of, I think, the moral appeal to shame. And you do see Kennedy use language of shame, sort of saying that we should be ashamed of what we've been doing. So you see some of King's language after the letters published being picked up by JFK later. Um, some people see that as evidence that King's language sort of impacted Kennedy. Other people see that as strategic. I think there's a lot of debate to be, to be had about that. And at the time, people like Stokely Carmichael, author of Black Power, really thought that, that shame really didn't work. His view was that white America lacked a conscience. And without a, a conscience, you can't feel shame. Because if you did feel shame and you did have a conscience, things would have changed long ago. So even in King's time, there was a lot of debate about whether this was actually a worthwhile pursuit to try to shame the white moderates into action. Um, and some people like Sophie Carmichael thought this was a waste of time and was unlikely to be effective. There are so many parallels between what's happening today in America specifically and what's happening in this letter and the things that he's talking about. Do you have some political emotions that you would name for our moment? Yeah, I think there are a lot of them. I guess one of the ones I've been thinking about and writing about and talking about lately is the emotion of fearlessness. So King really thought in his speeches and his writing, one of his goals in many ways, and I think this comes from Gandhi too, is to sort of foster a sense of fearlessness among the racially oppressed. Because to stand up to racial injustice and to fight for a better world, you have to be fearless. And I think we see that again. So we look at all the protests that have been happening and think about Black Lives Matter over the last you know, few years. There is a kind of dignified fearlessness that the protesters and the, the organizers of um, the movement for Black Lives are, are expressing. And I think we see that. Um, and it's been inspiring a lot of other people, I think, to also be fearless and to stand up as allies or comrades and, and to stand up for justice as well. So on the one hand, I see fearlessness and courage, um, especially coming from the racially oppressed, but also their comrades. But then we also see something else, which is the, you know, the kind of white terror of the insurgents at the Capitol riots. On one hand, they're inspiring a lot of fear through their actions, their violent kind of uh, breaking into the building and so on. But also, like, I think we also see that they're also experiencing a kind of white fear, which is sort of, you know, connected to status, right? So the thought is like, you know, the status of, of whites might be being threatened by current movements and the progress we're seeing. The fact that there were 9,000 um, protests over the summer, where in most cases, many of those protesters were actually white as well, um, happening in small, small suburban communities all over the country in the United States. That is threatening because now you've got a bunch of uh, black folks, brown folks and white folks questioning the status quo around racial justice. And I think in many ways, when we look at the insurgents, that is a response. But it's, a, it's a, like a, a response of fear, I think, in a way, to losing one's status, to not being having, a, you know, authority, unquestioned authority uh, that is, you know, causing a lot of, uh, I think, fear among white folks. And then also in turn, these violent responses. So I think we're seeing different emotions at stake this summer. I think we're and we're learning a lot about the kind of psychology of people on both sides, I think, in a way. Does it seem like maybe a good sign that the white response to a lot of the protests over the summer has been? Certainly, it's not a good thing that they responded with violence, but the sort of heightened emotion. I wonder if that means that the aims of Black Lives Matter are actually getting somewhere, right, that they are actually gathering some power. Yeah, so I think one thing that King really were worried about was the white backlash. So in his last book, Where We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, he has a chapter on the white backlash. And in a way, the white backlash is a result of the progress that's being made. But the problem with the backlash is that it can be so powerful. And again, it's a backlash of people who already have the most power. 
that it can set the movement back years and years. And so we have to look at what the long-term consequences of the election of Trump and then the insurgents and the growing, you know, it's not like the group of supporters that he had is, is going away. It's growing, in fact. And I think in some ways with the global wave of authoritarianism and anti-democratic movements, it's a phenomenon we're looking at globally. It just, it isn't just the United States. Um, and we do see a clampdown on democracy and the expression of democratic rights, like rights to protest and freedom to associate, that is a scary, a scary thing. So the worry is like, you're right. This is an emotional response because there's progress being made. But that response, you know, sometimes it can be very forceful and we have to worry about what the end results of a backlash like that would be like. And King really thought a lot about like what we should try to do and how do we respond to the backlash. And I mean, for him, the thought is we have to keep engaging in the movement. And even if it's going to get pretty messy or pretty violent, like the nonviolent resistance movement still has to keep continuing and fighting. Um, but today we're having a bit of a different discussion because a lot of people are asking the question of how long do nonviolent protesters stay nonviolent? And is there a threshold at some point if there is a violent insurgence or clapback, when do people get to defend themselves? And in a way we're seeing a debate that happened at the time of the civil rights movement with uh, Black Power and Malcolm X making, asking similar questions. Um, and I think in many ways, the current movement takes very seriously this question. It's not just assume the king is right. And I think we're having those conversations about violence versus nonviolence all over again. So why, why do you care about this? Why is this work important to you? Yeah, so I think partly just like emotions are really central to our own lived experiences. I think all of us are sort of emotional uh, creatures. And so understanding the emotions gives me understanding about myself and other people. But also as somebody who's a democratic theorist, who's long thought about the value of democracy, the next question for me is like, how do we really realize a true and genuine form of democracy that's robust and long lasting? And from people like King, but Gandhi, all these people who are involved in organizing, you see a really strong emphasis on moral emotions as being part of the path to progress. So if you care about sort of moving past the problems that we see, then we have to start really thinking about the role that the emotions play and how to cultivate the right sorts of emotions in our fellow citizens so that we can keep making progress in the right direction. So I think it really comes from a concern with moral progress and how do we get there. And do you have any suggestions for moral emotions that if we also care about a robust democracy that we might start to cultivate? I actually think there's so many. So part of my own work is kind of looking at the package of emotions that we need to cultivate. Some of it is courage and fearlessness. Some of it is love. Um, some of it is rage. So I think it's a real mixed bag. Some of it's distrust. Um, so they're not all fuzzy. I think that's actually maybe the first step is recognizing that a just society isn't just about love and, and compassion. It is also about rage and injustice. It is also sometimes about disappointment and distrust when people fail to live up to our expectations. All of these emotions are part of an, a package, I think, for, for fostering good citizenship, but also then leading to moral progress. And I think maybe just taking a more nuanced view to that sort of picture is maybe most the thing I'd want to emphasize most. If you want to know more about Mina Krishnamurthy's other work, check out our show notes page at examiningethics.org. The Prindle Institute for Ethics also produces a podcast called Getting Ethics to Work. You can find it at prindleinstitute.org backslash work or wherever you find your podcasts. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Brosius. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. 
The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.